Welcome to the Grow My Salon Business podcast, where we focus on the business side of hairdressing. I'm your host, Anthony Whitaker, and I'll be talking to thought leaders in the hairdressing industry, discussing insightful, provocative, and inspiring ideas that matter. So get ready to learn, get ready to be challenged, get ready to be inspired, and most importantly, get ready to grow your salon business. Hey everybody and welcome to today's podcast. I'm your host, Anthony Whitaker, and it's great to have you join us for today's episode. Today's a little different to usual in that I thought we'd mix it up a bit by not having my usual format of interviewing one guest on the show, but instead using a recording of a Clubhouse event that I hosted recently with two guest presenters. Now, for those of you who don't know what Clubhouse is, it's best described as a social media networking app based on audio chat. The topic we discussed was a question that I'm often asked, and that is, should I start a salon from scratch or buy an existing business? Now, like most things, there's not a one-size-fits-all answer to cover all cases, and there are multiple things to factor in, as well as some fors and against to consider before making a decision that is right for you. Now, sharing the mic with me today is Tina Black and Cindy Quinn Ventura, who are both salon owners, who have both bought existing salons, and they share their experience of what worked and what didn't. Now, for those of you who want more information, you should check out episode 63 on the Grow My Salon Business podcast that I did early in 2020, where I discussed the same topic. So with that said, on with today's show. Today, I titled the event, Should You Buy an Existing Salon or Start One from Scratch? It's often a question that I'm asked as a coach, and I've done both of those things, uh, and we're going to talk about those. And today on stage with me, we've got some great business experience and and wisdom. We've got Cindy Quinventura, who has a salon called Catherine Jew in, in Michigan, and... Um, Cindy comes to the industry as a non-hairdresser, but from corporate America. So she brings a lot of business experience. And I know that she bought an existing salon. Uh, so I'll get her to, she's obviously going to talk about that and her experience. And then we've got Tina Black, who is a multiple school and salon owner, along with her husband, Brian, and her daughter, Brianna. And they've got businesses in Michigan um, and in Florida. So, you know, it's a lot of experience between the three of us where we have um, all, you know, bought existing salons. And certainly Tina and myself have also started them from scratch. So should you buy an existing salon or should you uh, start one from scratch? Uh, That is the question. Um, Let me tell you about my experience. I I started a salon from scratch, um, like most people, you know, sort of naively, weren't quite sure uh, what opening a, a business would be like. And like many hairdressers, you realize very quickly that you have to learn and you learn the hard way uh, or you don't survive. And uh, so I learned and like everyone, I made lots of mistakes along the way, but also ended up building a great business. But probably two years into my first salon, um, I got contacted by somebody who was sort of my competition, basically. And they wanted to meet with me. And I thought they wanted to talk about putting a show on together as a, a fundraiser. And basically, they sat me down. It was a husband and wife. And they were getting divorced. 
and they wanted me to buy their business. Now, it, it totally blindsided me. And I said to them right off the bat that I, I really, you know, weren't looking at buying another business. Uh, and uh, they, they pretty much said to me, look, you know, we really want you. You are the right person to take our business over, take our team over and to, you know, to, to take the salon, you know, to the next level. And uh, they made pretty much what you would have to say was a, a, an irresistible offer that I, I just couldn't turn down. So I agreed to uh, purchase their salon and, you know, part of the irresistible offer was that I could pay it off over time and uh, and that suited me and it suited them. And then, you know, what they said was that they would talk to their, you know, we agreed on all the, all the legalities of it, signed contracts, all that sort of thing. And none of their staff had any idea that they were getting divorced and none of their staff had any idea that the salon was for sale. And they said to me that... Um, what they'll do is on the Saturday night, they'll uh, call a staff meeting at the end of the day and they'll explain to the staff that the two of them were splitting up and that they had sold their business and that their new owner was me. And that at that point in time, I was to be standing across the road, okay, so this was at 6 or 7 o'clock in the evening, so it was dusk time. I'd be standing across the road. I could see into the salon. I could see them having their meeting and that they would then wave me in. And I would uh, walk into the salon um, with a big smile on my face and, and I'm their new boss. And that's how it was all meant to play out. So what happened was exactly that, except the smile was wiped from my face very, very quickly because most of them were in tears. And uh, when I look back at it, you know, as to why this had happened, they were, they were in tears, obviously, because they were, you know, they, they, I don't know how much they realised about their, their bosses in terms of their relationship splitting up, but they were in tears because they just had the carpet pulled out from underneath them and all of a sudden they had a new boss and their previous uh, bosses were literally just going to get up and walk straight out the door. And they'd done the deal and I'd now taken over a salon. And um, I suppose, in hindsight, I realised very, very quickly that in so many ways, that was the very worst way to do it. So, you know, I'm not going to talk a lot at the moment, but I'm sure we'll come back to it, about, you know, what the advantages of doing a business that way were, because there was some advantages to it. Uh, obviously, the cost factor and how I was able to get into it was one of them. Uh, but there were certainly a lot of disadvantages as well. So um, I've done both, opened from scratch, built a business up, and bought an existing salon. And uh, it, it, I think the, the bottom line is there's not an answer that is do this, it's better than that, because there are so many variables involved. So I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to first of all go to Tina, um, because Tina has also done both. She started selling from scratch and um, she uh, has taken over or bought an existing business. And, and get Tina to sort of outline a little bit about her experience, about, uh, about what that process was like for her. So, Tina, over to you. Thank you, Anthony. Oh, my gosh. You're right. It's like it depends. That's the answer. It depends. Yeah. It really depends on what type of business structure that you're going to have. And I, you know, coach a lot of slot owners as well, too. And some of them are team-based pay. 
And so if your team-based pay and you're paying an hourly wage versus commission, it's something you kind of want to think about and say, maybe I need to be in an area that I can get some walk-ins, right? And so for us, we just had to make that decision from day one and say, okay, what's our business plan? And, you know, I was the same as you, Anthony, in the very beginning when I first got into this business. And I bet there's a lot of salon owners that feel the same way. I was biting off way more than I could chew. I did not understand the salon business. I thought because I owned cosmetology schools that I understood the salon business. Uh, I did not. We actually took over our first salon way back in 2000. Oh gosh, I want to say 2002. And we paid way too much for it. Uh, $90,000 back back in that day. Can you believe it? And we really, my husband and I were just so blindsided. We really thought we were buying a business. And the thing is, is when you're buying a salon that's not a franchise. So, cause I want to differentiate franchises versus something that, you know, is just owned by one person, right? And so this person kind of showed us her books and they looked really good, but they were stacked. These books Mm -hmm. were stacked. So since then we have learned how to read profit and loss statements, income statements, balance sheets, Anthony, we learned the hard way. It cost us a lot of money after, you know, hurting that business, getting a walkout, me having a severe anxiety attack. It was it was horrible, but also wonderful at the same time because years later I figured out how to run a salon business, but it took that pain for that to happen, right? Yeah. And so, yeah, so we've done the same thing. And then uh, now we're building our fifth salon and uh, we have built actually our model. This is our model, I'll just share our model is to get into the lowest rent possible areas because we have built our team up so much from the very beginning, starting with my daughter, that we can really build through social media and through networking and contacts that we don't need really great locations. So we try to buy existing salons um, and we prefer to get them for free. We were very blessed because two of the slides, one was given to us. Wow. (laughs) And the second one, the people passed away. Uh, The owner died and we took over the lease. And so we're constantly looking on Craigslist and looking to see if a salon has been deserted because the infrastructure is right there. And it's quicker, it's faster, it's cheaper. My husband can go in and do the quick remodel and get us up and running now. Uh, With that being said, we kind of shifted and adapted because of an opportunity that has been thrown into our lap recently of possibly going into a hotel. And however, I will say we were able to work out a really solid deal with this, uh, with the landlord that they are going to give us all of the build out monies to be able to make that happen. So it really depends. And my husband always says, because we want to open up a school, another school here in Florida, we're looking at a location. If you can get in a location, if you're going to do new, his advice is this, that you get in before there's any other businesses in that complex. So if you're going to rent and not buy, so I'm just talking rental, right? Yeah. If you can get in because there are a lot, the landlord's going to be a lot more willing to give you a better deal versus if there's just one spot left in the uh, building, right? Now he's going to, you know, he's going to play hardball and try to charge you more. 
Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Okay. All right. Um, you touched on something that I know is going to come up um, with other people during this call. I know it's going to probably come up with Cindy. It comes up with a lot of people, and that is that people often pay way too much uh, when they take over an existing business. And, I mean, I didn't pay way too much. Like I said, it was literally given to me. So it was one of those things I – I mean, I, I did pay for it. But, I mean, there's no big secret. It was like 20-odd grand. Uh, and so to take a business over for 20 or twenty grand is, is literally being given to you uh, because, it, you know, it had lots of great fixtures and fittings, et cetera, et cetera. But I come across a lot of people who they buy an existing business and, you know, they have just walked – into a deal where there's been a lot of trust involved and they paid way too much for it and then it often just goes from bad to worse as the business that they paid way too much for starts to walk out the door as well. So, um, Cindy, can we cross to you? What's a, a little bit of your experience? As I said in the introduction, you know, you came into the industry from corporate America. I, 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 rem- I can't remember, was it legal or finance? It's funny. It was a little bit of both. Um, I, my career and my uh, graduate studies were in finance, business, and marketing. But when I uh, left the corporate world, I had been working as the chief of staff um, for a general counsel of a large utility company. Right. And it was... Um, I was in my 50s and was ready. My last daughter had gone off to college and I think she'd actually graduated by then and I was ready to do something for me. And I had always wanted to be in the salon business from the time I was in high school. And my parents said, sure, you can do that after you get your business degree. Because if you're going to do that, then you better know how to run a business, which I came from a uh, small family business. So fast forward, I um, I met this wonderful woman 30-odd years ago who owned a salon, and I would call her about every six months and say, do you need anybody to answer your phone? How about sweep? How about, you know, check in and, and say hello to the guests? And, of course, me not knowing, she never needed someone just to show up and do that. What she really needed was somebody who knew the, who knew the business and was going to commit. So... We moved forward to, God, 15 years ago. Um, she moved on my street, of all things. And I had then, by then, had a corporate job for almost 30 years, um, 12 of which were in commercial real estate. So, Tina, to your point, um, the lease is a very, very big part of when you're going to buy a business because you are committed to that lease, depending on how it's written based on what the previous lease signature defined. So that's a really, really important part. Um, And anyway, I was retiring. I was getting out of the business. Corporate America was not what I wanted it to be for me anymore. And uh, there was an opportunity where I was working for me to uh, take take an exit package, which I did. And I kind of putzied around and couldn't decide exactly what I wanted to do. Um, I became a kayaking guide and a yoga therapist. And then, ironically, my neighbor decided she was ready to sell her business and contacted my husband, who is also a commercial real estate agent. And lo and behold, we uh, nailed down a deal in about three months, and we closed on New Year's Eve. 
in 2018. Okay. So as someone who came into the industry without yeah. the hairdressing background, what was some of the, um, in hindsight, what are some of the lessons that you learn along the way about buying an existing salon business? Uh, well, again, I think the both of you touched touched on one of those, um, understanding the books. The books are not always what they seem. Um, mm. And that's kind of part of being a business owner. That's kind of how it works. So you just have to understand how to ask enough questions and read, read through some of those numbers. Um, I would say another thing that I really learned was that you know, I came from the corporate world, which things are very black and white. There's a little bit of gray, but not a lot. Um, the salon industry and the beauty industry is much more creative and much more gray than it is black and white. And I had been conditioned to walk that line of objectivity versus subjectivity. And the big lesson for me was to realize that what might be right in one situation with one stylist or one client may not be right in the same situation with a different stylist or client. Okay. So, so I, I took a beating at the beginning. I'll be very honest. I was, I was going to live and die by my, my training in human resources and my training in um, business management. I'm sorry, you can hear my uh, support person in the back. I have a little Siamese who <laughs> is distracted that I'm ignoring him. Uh, and I was going to have these, you know, these weekly meetings and we were going to talk about goals and we were going to discuss um, numbers and how are we going to get there. And, and I was writing everything down. And what I learned is stylus and people in this industry are more visual and more creative. And for me, it was a very difficult transition to learn to, to, to work with them and speak with them from where they come as opposed to from where I come. Yeah. And yeah, I needed to earn my, earn my place in their, in their heads, but more importantly, in their hearts. Um, the business I bought, the owner was very, very well loved, very, very well respected, and had employees that had been with her for over 30 years. So you can probably imagine their thought when they learned it was me, uh, similar to your, your transition, Nancy. I, it was two or three people knew ahead of time that it was me. She had some relatives in the salon, but other than that, and I had been a client of the salon for years. So other than that, they didn't really know and they were a little gun shy and they were um you know they were a team and i was the interloper i was i was the odd man out yeah exactly exactly you you, you become the the imposter so to speak you know and that is oh, yeah. part of the problem but i'm just going to go back to i suppose really when i because it keeps coming up is talking about the value of a business and how do you buy a business and uh, um you know and i've said a couple of times already that oftentimes you know people pay way too much for a business in the first place and so the, the question becomes 
and I'm sure people in the audience are sitting there thinking this, well, how do you value a business? What is a business worth? And uh, and both of you, again, I've, I've got a little list in front of me, but feel free to add to it if you think I miss anything out because uh, I've just been sort of scratching it out as uh, as we've been talking. So, so the first thing I put down is what is the worth of a business? Um, and these are in no particular order, is length of the lease comes into it. So... If, if there's only six months left on the lease, well, the business is pretty much worth nothing, no matter how pretty it looks, no matter how many clients you've got, no matter how many staff you've got, or how profitable it currently is, if the lease is about to expire, then uh, you're not going to touch it. So, uh, or I wouldn't say you're not going to touch it, but I'd say there'd be flashing red lights going off all over the place. So length of the lease is certainly something you're going to factor in. If something's got a five-year lease or a 10-year lease, then you know you're buying something with some certainty. If you're buying, you know, a six-month lease or a 12-month lease of, that's left on the business, then the value of that business has gone down the plug hole really quick. Uh, another thing to factor in is the inventory, because sometimes what happens is that when someone agrees on a price for the uh, the salon, what they then do is they they wind down all the inventory because they don't want to be, you know, filling up the shelves with inventory uh, for then you to walk in and get the benefit of what they've spent. Uh, what they've spent. Uh, and, and that's crazy. So I always say to people that you should agree at, at changeover that there will be a, or when you're talking about the contracts and you're negotiating the deal, that there should be a clause put in there about you pay X amount for the salon plus the value of the inventory at changeover so that they're not going to wind it down uh, to, to, you know, Bare, bare minimum uh, while clients and staff members are still wor- are still working in there. I hope that makes sense. Uh, so inventory at, at, at changeover. Uh, and then the fit out. Now, sometimes salon owners put a lot of value on their fit out. And I can see we've got Leon in the room who is, you know, Mr. Fit Out when it comes to salons. And a fit out's worth something. Well, it depends. I mean, if, if a salon has been given a great fit out, you know, like great chairs and great reception desks, great furnishings, lighting and plumbing and all that, and it's 12 months old or something, then, yeah, it's it's worth something. And, you know, I might get Leon to chime in on this later on, but, you know, if, if it's been a case of um, uh, the fit out was great, but it's five years old, well, basically, that's just second-hand furniture. And, and probably the person who buys it is going to end up getting rid of most of it anyway. So fit-out can be worth something, but it very definitely uh, does, um, you know, depend on on what the fit-out is and, you know, how recent it is, etc. Uh, so that's the next thing on my list. Uh, another thing to consider if you're buying the business and, and – um, uh, Cindy touched on it before when, or, or actually I think it was Tina, I think she talked about team-based pay. You know, if you're buying a business and it's full of W-2, uh, so for our non-American audience, uh, W-2 employees are employees, whereas 1099 are independent contractors. So we don't use that terminology in the UK. We just call them employees or independent contractors. Americans use the, the, the term uh, W-2 for an employee or 1099 for an independent which is the name of the tax form that they used. So, again, if you've got employees, a business is worth more um, than if you've got independent contractors because independent contractors are just paying you a weekly or monthly fee or whatever it is to be there. So you need to know whether it's W-2, 1099 or team-based pay. 
Um, and then the, the other thing that hairdressers that are selling their business will always put a lot of stock on is what they will term as goodwill. And, you know, the, the goodwill, I'm sorry to tell you, is worth very little, if anything, because the goodwill can work, walk straight out the door the very next day. When it comes to a mathematical formula for how um, an accountant might value a business, they will typically have some sort of formula that is along the lines of saying it's three times profit. So at the end of the year, and this is a really important part of this, con this, this sentence, at the end of the financial year, whatever the profit and loss says as being profit is it's three times that formula. So uh, imagine that, the, you know, it says that there's $30,000 profit or £30,000 profit uh, in the business. It's three times that, 90000 That then becomes your starting point for negotiation. Okay, uh, and that's really all it is. It's a starting point. It's some sort of formula, but um, you know that can change dramatically depending on any of those other variables that I've just uh, just brought up. Uh, Chris has come to the stage. Um, Chris, what would you like to uh, add to the conversation there? Hi, um, hi Tina. Hope you're doing all right. Hope your family's well. Hi, Chris. <laughs> so, um, although on my bio it says that I have a charity called Coco's Foundation, I actually am a salon owner and I own three salons. Um, but I took my first salon uh, on when I was 20 and uh, did pretty much what uh, maybe you did, Anthony, was, and, I, and I, I, I bought it, I took it over. Um, and I would agree completely that um, it's, it's, it's completely, to make it successful quickly, it's about the culture of the salon. Mm. And um, I really, really struggled. It was been a sort of I was only just twenty, um, and everybody else in the salon was a lot older for me. And until that tipping balance moved across to the people that I had trained up, and there was more of those guys in the salon, the culture started to shift. That's when it started to to, to make money, and that's when it really started to improve for me. I then went on and then opened up another salon, a brand new salon and um, transferred some of the team members that we, we trained up into that one, and um, that just took off straight away. Um, so it, it really does just, I feel, depend on the, the culture and what culture you want, um, you know, in, in the salon. The, the, the due diligence piece um, is really important if you're going to buy, um, buy into a salon. Certainly, uh, from my point of view, that when um, we bought into that salon, using that times three um, uh, formula, which uh, uh, accountants often recommend, um, you know, if, if there's something wrong with your due, due diligence when you're when you're going through it, um, you know, that that comes down and down and down and down and down. So you know, you've got to make sure that that everything's in place. So if you're going to purchase uh, the salon, you can you can knock it down. But also, if somebody's purchasing your salon. You've got to make sure that you've got all of those, the structure and the due diligence in this, in place to make sure that your you know that your price you can keep up as high as you can before you before you sell it. So you know we have a, a salon bible um, which has all our key result areas, everything everything goes into it, or how you on reception, etc. And that's basically what people are buying is that bible, um, and you know because that's how the, the business is run, and you know on all the information of, of absolutely how we do everything. So it's a bit like, I suppose, McDonald's and like a franchise. It has a Bible. This is how it is run and this is how it's successful. And that's what you're selling 
once you've you know once you manage to build up your salons and and if you you know if you've got a group of salons um then you know that's what makes it valuable yeah okay well thanks for that input chris i appreciate that and and one of the things that that chris touched on there um was you know talking about when when it comes to talking about the value of the business and what you're prepared to pay for it a, a lot of people will what's the right way to put this they will often say to you well look on the profit and loss it says that we're just breaking even or making this figure in terms of profit uh but between you and I we're actually making a lot more profit than that i'm sure you get my drift here with this and so that's why they have then valued the business at some inflated figure all i would say to you is this is that when when that happens that's a red light flashing in the first place that that you don't pay based on uh some imaginary profit that isn't shown on the profit list loss but they're just assuring you that it actually exists that they've been taking it out you know illegally um and unfortunately i think it was Cindy that sort of alluded to this at the beginning that that sometimes the figures and the records that are kept uh in our industry you know they that the that you find that that happens quite a lot so you're basing something really not on facts and you need to be basing them on facts and those facts are whatever is written down in the in the P&L um so so let me come back to uh Cindy let me come back to you uh the word cultures come up uh a couple of times there um you know and and what for you working you know you've been a client of the salon you bought for some time but then all of a sudden yes. you bought it and you were the owner of that salon and you wanted to run it more like a business so for you you sort of you know were challenged with that that the way hairdressers thought and acted and uh responded to goal setting and productivity and all that sort of stuff it really wasn't a fit for what you were trying to do and you wanted to make a more productivity accountability driven culture which there's nothing wrong with it is a business after all so so talk to us about your experience with trying to change the culture and i know you have now pretty much changed the culture and got it to be something you know more in line with what you wanted so talk to us about that Sure. Um well, <laughs> it it was tough. And I think the the first thing I had to learn was to be tough and to have a little bit of thick skin and not take things personally. Uh the culture I stepped into as I mentioned had been created probably close to 30 years ago and they had all been through weddings and graduations and marriages and deaths and births of multiple family members and they were quite a tight group and they were not interested in an outsider and what i was bringing to the table i thought would benefit many of them which was there's a whole other world out there of of doing of running a salon which in actuality yes it's a salon but it's a business it just happens to be a salon and there are other ways to see what else is out there and one of them was uh bringing the business to social media which was not met with a lot of positivity 
And it was a very uh, arduous process. It ultimately worked out because I'm still here and we're talking about it, but it was, it was, it was difficult. And I kept explaining to everybody and somebody mentioned the evil word of change. And that's, that's kind of how it's looked at. And I did my best to uh, support the idea of change in that it was a way to grow and a way to expand and a way to build upon as a as opposed to change being not doing what you're currently doing. And in my head and with the support of a lot, a lot of great mentors and coaches, Anthony, you of course being the main one in that group, uh, tried to explain that to the team. And some of them got it for a while. Some of them were interested in it. Some of them were excited about it. Others were not at all. And we ultimately had a parting of the ways to an extent. So when I say that, and some of you may support this route and some of you may not, but I didn't have anybody who just walked out. What I had was a um, an agree to disagree situation where we discussed why it wasn't working and what everybody wanted to do. And the biggest thing that they wanted to do was not have any change, but yet they were, they wanted to leave. So my question back to them was, well, how much more change do you think you're going to have if you go somewhere else? And while I thought that was a very logical and again, somewhat objective question, in their mind, it wasn't the way it was, so they were going to go try it somewhere else. And I would say that 80% of the departures uh, were on reasonably good terms. And they were, they were worked out in a way that benefited, most importantly, uh, the clients, secondarily, the salon's bottom line, because my salon is an employee-based salon, and I had an obligation to the other employees at the salon to make sure that we stayed profitable and made sure that we could continue to keep the doors open. And what's interesting is that I had my largest departure in September of 19, September to October, some into November. And then we all know what happened in January and February of 2020. Yeah. Okay. So a little bit of, uh, I guess I would call a COVID gift is that I had the three months to reinvent the culture and and show everybody who we were and who, who, who I thought we could be. And I now have a team that uh, knows where I'm coming from in terms of, no, I'm not a stylist and I will not tell you how to cut hair and I will not tell you how to, how to do a balayage. But what I will tell you is how to continue to, reach out to your clients, how to do uh, B2B and deliver deliver packages to new businesses in the area and let them know that we're here and how to, how to create marketing events to bring in new clients and how to add revenue streams to the business and have pop-up events. That's where I can support you. I can't support you, at least not yet, in anything that relates to how you actually do your craft. And I have made the, made my, uh, point to them very clear and that I respect it and I honor it and I couldn't have the business without their craft and without their uh, God-given talents and mm-hmm. 
by giving them that respect in that area, I think we have all grown from that foundation. Yeah. I don't, yeah. I don't know that I made that clear at the beginning to everybody that I am actually in awe of anybody who can hold a pair of scissors, comb, and or a, a razor in their hand and, and create what they do every day. It's amazing to me while you're standing on your feet. That's, yeah. That blows my mind. <laughs> okay. All right, Cindy. Thanks for that. So, Tina, yeah. can, I, can I come to you and ask you, when you've taken over existing businesses, have you ever had a situation where the owner has stayed, whether they've you know, asked you if you want them to stay or whether you've asked them to stay? Have you ever done that? And, and what, was the, what was the impact of that? Did it work or not work? Well, that was the first one. And, uh, and I had a really great relationship with that owner and I thought it would work well, but it did not at all. In fact, she undermined every type of change that we tried to bring on into the salon. And so when we got to the point of buying one of an existing salon a few years back, the owner wanted to stay. And of course, in my head, I'm like, no way. You know, my first answer was no. And then the second answer was, okay, you could stay on if you do this. So we had like a written contract and she disagreed to all of it and she left. So yeah. it worked out in our favor in that fact. Yeah, that's that's interesting. I often come across a lot of people who um, do, do want the owner to stay because that in theory gives the business some stability. Uh, during that handover time, because otherwise what can happen is you buy the business and then the next week, next month, you know, all the staff walk out the door and take the client base with them. Whereas by um, uh, getting the owner to stay for 12 months or whatever uh, the term of the contract is, then it, it, it's, there's more likely to be less disruption on one hand. But I suppose it really all comes down to who that individual is, because I've seen some uh, owners who have stayed and they've been the ones that are doing the undermining of everything that the new owner uh, is trying to implement. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. I, I, yeah, we have an opportunity to potentially buy a salon and it's a very good friend of ours and he's in his 80s and he would love to stay on to continue to cut hair, you know, so I would probably just bring him on as an independent contractor, you know, and uh, I mean, he's in his 80s, of course, I want him to, you know, finish out his career and his life there because he's that type of fellow that will probably continue to work until he dies, just like me. I'm not going to retire. I just keep refiring, right, Anthony? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, so it depends. Yeah. Exactly. So, so how, do you, how do you change a culture? We've all touched on this word culture. When you take over an existing business, it already has a culture, and you walk in the door, and it may or may not be the sort of culture that you want. So the business that I took over, it wasn't the sort of culture I wanted. So... Um, you know, I tried to uh, to change it. And in time, it did change and it did change to the culture that I wanted. But it certainly uh, wasn't without tears in the process because, you know, as I said, and I, I can understand it from their point of view, they felt let down that the previous owner had sold the business out from underneath them. And then I come in and understandably, I want to put my stamp on it and my way of doing things because their way of doing things just simply wasn't, you know, acceptable to me. Uh, unfortunately, you often get the people that are there 
undermining you at every, you know, every opportunity they've got. They undermine and they sabotage everything you do because they literally don't want you to succeed. So what what would your tip be about about what you need to do to change the culture successfully? Gosh, I haven't done it, but if there's anyone on the panel that's been able to make it happen, I'd love to hear because we we tried. And I knew from the very beginning that, you know, and of course we coach salon owners, right, to start shifting and changing their culture within that they have. And that's one of the big mistakes that they make is they don't have a written culture, right? Yeah. And so when we first took on one of our salons and and I remember uh, our coach was telling us, he said, nothing changes. And so just get build a, a really great relationships with each of the people in the in the company, which we worked on. We did that. I even had them in my home in Florida and, you know, wined and dined them, took them to dinner, worked super, super hard in that. But, you know, you just cannot, you know, shift people. And, and even when I coach my current leaders in my companies, I always notice that if you bring a new person in charge, usually the ones underneath them are going to change as well, too. You know, it just it just is what it is. And so you just have to stick to your guns and just say, OK, this is going to be our culture of what we're going to have and then continue to really look for new people all of the time, period, for yeah. that process, because people are going to leave. Yeah, exactly. Now, uh, Tina, you're lucky in that your husband, uh, business partner, um, is also an attorney. Um, what would he be saying to you that you need to look out for if you're buying an existing business in in terms of the, you know, the traps, in terms of the legal entitlements that existing staff might be entitled to? Is, would there be any generalizations that he would say, we need to make sure that this is or isn't happening? Well, you know, we, our current, avenue of course is just the fact of buying a salon um and like you said earlier of inventory like do you even want that inventory you know so kind of basing on what is it worth and then you know so for when we bought a salon not too long ago for thirty-five thousand, we really were sort of buying their chairs and things like that but we ended up you know, completely replacing them. But we were also buying the location, Anthony, and, and the rent was low compared to that area. So there's a lot of factors that go into it. Yeah. And we were, it was about half of what we could have gotten anywhere else. And so that was her bottom line. It's what she wanted. And, and so we were willing to pay that to her, even though we completely remodeled, right? And so as far as existing staff, when we first came in, you know, the bottom line is you got to look and see how they're paid. <laughs> and so we did it. We were just, we were so oblivious and not educated. When you were talking earlier, W2 versus 1099, we didn't really understand that when we went in there and we're like, what is this? And so we started studying Department of Labor laws and we're like, oh my gosh, we can't ask them to um, you know, be on time or ask them to do things that an employee would do if they're paid as an independent contractor and they were overpaid, Anthony. And, and so again, nothing changes with pay. And so we knew going into it, we would not change their pay, but they left anyway. 
they knew that they weren't a good fit for us. And, and so when we went to Australia on vacation, <laughs> they made a mad exodus out the door and went to an independent contracting salon because they were upset that we switched. We did switch them to W-2, but we kept their pay the same. Could you imagine the money that we were losing, but we were willing to take the chance, right, in order to try to salvage them? Because we really liked all of those stylists. But was there written contracts for each one? No. There was no written. So that's something that he would have looked at uh, to see, and he did, and there wasn't anything. Got it. Okay. So I've been making some notes while everyone's been talking about fours and against, and I've written down, you know, uh, in, in the four column for starting a business from scratch, you get to create the culture from day one, and that is an incredibly important thing to be able to do. Uh, so the fours for starting from scratch, you get to create the culture from day one. You then get to employ to that culture. So you employ people that are already a fit to the culture that you want because it's it's far easier to employ people that share your values than it is to change someone's values. I certainly learned that the hard way. Uh, another four for starting everything from scratch is that there's no history, that, you know, negative or in, in any shape or form. Uh, and another four is that everything is new from day one, which is always nice. But there's always an against column as well. And I don't think I've got enough things in the against column at the minute, but uh, I've put them down the, the against starting from scratch. The first one is going to be the cost of fit out because, you know, starting with an empty shell, um, depending on what sort of infrastructure is already there in terms of electrics and plumbing, which is often a big one that people underestimate, um, you know, there can be a serious cost implication there with that if you're starting from scratch. Whereas what you said, Tina, before was that one of the things that uh, that you and Brian look for is a premises that's already a salon. And, and even if it's uh, someone who's gone bust, uh, and, and no matter how tired and ugly the building might look, there's certain infrastructure that already exists. So in, in terms of the four list for buying an existing business, You've got infrastructure, so you've got all the operating licenses, but yes, you can have a salon there. You've got infrastructure in terms of plumbing and electrics, etc. You've got an existing client base that may not always be the client base that's a fit for what you want, and I think Cindy might have something to add in on that shortly. Uh, you've got existing staff, even if you don't always want them. Uh, you've got existing relationships with suppliers and vendors, and that can be really valuable. You've got existing systems as uh, as Chris said, you know, that there's already uh, a way of doing things. But that can vary dramatically from business to business. And obviously, the other thing that's good about buying an existing business is that in theory, there's there is instant cash flow. Whereas for me, when I opened my first business, with and, and it, there were no clients, I arrived in the country, opened up a salon, I had days where I did nothing. So there was no cash flow at the beginning. Um, so, yeah, what else do I put there? So, so, so the against column for buying an existing business was that more often than not, people, in my experience, are paying way too much for it. Uh, the against column is you inherit a culture and you're the newbie. And you might be lucky and inherit a great culture with great people. Or you might have a you know, major problem with the culture that's there. And as you try and change it, you end up losing all the staff and potentially all the clients with it. Um, 
also the against column for buying an existing business is that you inherit relationships that maybe you don't like. So maybe there's a relationship already with a supplier, but you don't want that supplier and, and that can get a bit messy as you try and change that. Uh, there's always the resistance from staff as you try and change something. And the against for buying an existing business is that in varying degrees, those people can all leave the next day. And because the relationship is with the hairdresser and you're the newbie, you are often in a situation where you just stand there and watch your investment walk out the door, which obviously you don't want. So we're coming up to, uh, we've got like seven or eight minutes to go. Um, Cindy, do you have anything that you um, want to throw in there just to sort of start to wrap up? about your experience of buying an existing business and what you might do different if you could wind the clock back? Oh, gosh. Yes. Um, there are a lot of things that I would do differently. Uh, you know, I also learned a lot, and I wouldn't change the learning experience for anything. Uh, I think I probably would have gotten to know the client base sooner. I was very focused on getting to know the stylist and making sure that they knew that I was credible and that I knew how to run a business and that I was going to be a good leader for them and I was going to work on developing them. And in the meantime, I didn't realize how potentially unsettling it could be for the clients. And if they had been maybe considering a change, whether it be because they moved or because of you know, the environment or a job or something. Um, that's where I think I would have spent a little bit more of my time. I've started doing that now and I'm seeing the return. Um, the culture that, that I'm trying to uh, build upon now is much more personal with, with me and the stylist to the client. So everything that we do is personalized from me and the stylist. So it's a thank you note signed by me and so-and-so, whoever took care of them. And I would, I think that when they, they meaning the clients see that an owner is that committed, uh, they're willing to potentially sit through a few bumps here and there. And we've had them since we renamed the salon and we, we've gotten new clients and we're actually in the middle of a big remodel right now. So there's a lot of dust. There's a lot of things going on. But the clientele, the the guests have been very, very patient and very excited. And, you know, even though I'm not a stylist, they'll say, well, I know so-and-so's busy, but I got to have this done. Who would you recommend? Yeah. So we've gotten to a point where, um, they will will trust my judgment. They will they'll call me and I'll say to them, everyone gets a follow-up email that says, we hope you enjoyed your visit. If there's any recommendations for improvement, you know, please email me directly. Here's my phone number. Here is my this. So they know that they always have a direct line of communication to me. So for, for me, I think the biggest myth is uh, not developing the relationship with the client base sooner. Okay. All right. Good tip. Right. Thank I you. have invited Sam to the stage because uh, I know Sam bought a Sam Bricato. He bought a existing business in New York. Uh, Sam, we've only got like five minutes left, but I saw you sat in there and I thought, I wonder what your 
experience, someone who has bought salons and sold salons, over, you know, what, what would your sort of preference be? Buy an existing business? I know you, I don't think you were here at the beginning of this call, you know, buy an existing business or start one from scratch. Okay, so I'll be quick. I'll be quick. Um, yes, I bought, I've actually bought two salons in New York City. And then um, one I bought and we closed it on West 13th Street, but we ended up with about um, maybe 300,000, uh, 400,000 in revenue on an ongoing basis for the six years because the people moved over, a couple of the top people moved over to our Soho salon. So that investment, which was about $120,000, turned out to be paid off really fast and we got out of the lease and just left so but before that we bought the soho salon which we paid more for and it took us about um four years for that one to earn back everything we paid for it the culture we kept and to this day i would say we have five people or six people of the 12 or 14 that were there that are still with us and very productive that took some very intense uh, management of the culture and and just as a side note i think it's really important when i sat down and decided to buy soho what i did anthony was i did a spreadsheet for 10 years of the market value of the lease given the location in soho to uh, you know, a prime place to be. So what I did was a spreadsheet. I took the average square foot of what I was paying, and then I did the area, and I found that what I was going to be paying was low enough to where if the business failed, which it essentially was failing in the first year, I was going to be able to flip the lease and maybe even at a premium and still make back some or all of my money. So it's a very tricky thing to do. I totally agree with Cindy. Getting to know the customers is at least as important as getting to know the underlying staff. The last point is I had a hairdresser that was one of my team members with me for years who moved to New York to work with us because we didn't have a clientele in New York. And she became a very important buffer between new culture old culture she explained to the people who we were so i'm sam and i'm done speaking and i help that's great sam thanks for coming to the stage i appreciate that uh we have lorraine as well now who's joined the stage lorraine i'm not sure if you had a question or uh comment but uh over to you before we start to wrap up well, first of all, I just want to say thank you for being part of this panel. This is just to lay down rules panels for everybody. I've been in the industry for 23 years and I grew up in my mother's salon and I just purchased my first salon during COVID, an existing salon that's um, marking 19 years this October. So this conversation has been so insightful and so um it's a breath of fresh air for me to be part of the conversation at large. I admire everybody on this panel. So thank you for this opportunity. You've given me a lot of golden wisdom and strength. Thank you. Good. Thanks, Lorraine. Well, good luck. I'm sure everybody uh, on stage and in the audience wish you all the best for your uh, new business ventures. So, uh, Tina, before I wrap up, have you got any final words there? Yeah, I think it's really, think as a business owner and start thinking about how can I scale this business and how can I shift the way things are happening? And that's what we decided from the very get-go is we started to, instead of employee employing people, we started thinking we're going to employ future partners. And so that's part of our scaling process as well as our exit strategy as we move forward, we were able to actually sell 20% sell of one of our salons to one of our existing stylists to bring her on as a partner. And so I think just really getting 
getting that cap on, you know, as a business owner, what is going to be, how am I going to scale and how am I going to have a very, very specific exit strategy? And I always am leery, uh, Anthony, of someone that's selling their salon, saying that they're making a lot of money with it. That's kind of a red flag for me because it's like if it was making that much money, you would keep it or you would uh, just bring up your own uh, people to be able to take it over and continue with that company. So that's kind of a red flag for me because kind of like what Cindy said earlier, it's a whole different animal, a salon business as far as a business goes because you're really buying people that are doing the work and been getting a lot of great advice, Anthony, of trying to turn your company, your business into something where you can make money not from people's efforts as well. So kind of shifting and adapting in that manner. So I'm, I'm really learning and that facet and leaning on you, Anthony, for that and many other coaches. So thanks for having me on the panel. My absolute pleasure. It's always great to you know, have you here, Tina. Uh, so look, we need to start wrapping up the call. I want to, to thank Tina Black and Cindy Quinn Ventura for uh, sharing their knowledge with us today. Uh, it's been great to have you both here, guys. Thank you, Anthony. Thank you so much for including me and Tina. It was my honor to be on a panel with you. Great. Perfect. Well, it's been really good to have you here, and I'm glad to hear the wedding went well yesterday as well. Okay, so thank you. we are now closing up this room. I'm Anthony Whitaker, and thank you all for being here. Uh, if anyone wants to find out more about what I do, then visit us at growmysalonbusiness.com and check out our online courses, books, and other free resources. So thanks, everybody. Have a great day. Thank you. Bye, everyone. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you'd like to connect with us, you'll find us at growmysalonbusiness.com or on Facebook and Instagram at growmysalonbusiness. And if you enjoyed tuning into our podcast, make sure that you subscribe, like, and share it with your friends. Until next time, this is Anthony Whitaker wishing you continued success.